pleasure today on Kathy Morrison from Anthropology, for those of you who don't know me, to um, introduce Dr. S.R. Willenbeg from Deccan College. Um, Dr. Willenbeg got his PhD from the University of Pune in 1978. He did a lot of work for CARE and worked at the Birla Institute uh, and joined the faculty of Deccan College in 1980. He has a very interesting um, history that I won't recount in great detail because we want to get to the substance of the talk, but many of us know him as a biological anthropologist, or we might say honorary archaeologist, also who's done very extensive work with human skeletal populations in South Asia, who has really done the work on um, all the recent uh, analysis of uh, human demography, paleopathology, and all kinds of other um, work relating to human skeletal uh, research in South Asia. But he's also done uh, for example, the you know uh, very important work at Inamgon was really um, his doing. But what, what many of us may not know is that he also has a whole nother life, a whole nother side as uh, a person who does some work on ethnoarchaeology, on uh, studies of contemporary tribal populations. Um, he's done work on developing um, measures of epiphyseal growth that can be used for um, in archaeological or biological analyses. And he's also, I'll just close by saying, uh, recently become a film star in, uh, in a film known as a, a National Geographic film with the title of Skeletal Lake um, about the Rukun Human Skeletal Remain project. So I will just le leave you tantalizingly curious about that so that you can ask some questions um, in the end. Um, so with no further ado, then I'll introduce uh, Dr. S. R. Willembe, Director of the Anthropology Lab at Deccan College, who's speaking on demography of ancient South Asia. <coughs> okay. This is me. <laughs> so we'll start with the slide. This is the first slide. Okay, what I will do is I have some 45 minutes of uh, time. Uh, I'm blocking your... No. Huh? Shall I sit or...? No, no. Okay. I will prefer to well, divide my lecture in three topics. First uh, few minutes I will spend on telling you the nature of the skeletal evidence, human skeletal evidence that we have in the subcontinent and the archaeological context of the material. Then I will talk about the major research goals we had so far uh, and the kind of the relevance of our studies to understand the anthropology and archaeology of uh, the country. I will prefer to put it before 80, after 80. Why 1980, I don't know. But uh, probably 1984 would have been the better date to put it. Because in 1984, one landmark publication came in the field of paleopathology. We call it uh, by one Cohen and Armelogos, Paleopathology at the Origins of Agriculture. And that book really changed our theoretical perspectives. The way we used to look at the bones, now we, used to look, now we are looking at the bones. That book really made us change our perspective. I am putting 1980 for the simple reason to satisfy my own ego because I joined archaeology in 1980. So that's why I'm putting 1980. There is no other reason. Well, I will prefer, to, uh, I will, uh, will complete that part in 45 minutes. And if you are generous enough to give me another five minutes, I will speak about the current, uh, what we are doing right now. Uh, <coughs> well, a couple of things, actually three things I want to tell you before I start my lecture. Uh, the first thing is when you are speaking about, when you are dealing with archaeological stuff, uh, the kind of uh, inferences that you make. 
they are valid they are okay for the substance that you currently know more sides you excavate more skeletal material i get i might have to change my perceptions of the whole thing so whatever i am telling you is true to this point of knowledge uh, frame that we have in our subject the second thing is uh, in uh, 45 minutes i don't have any time i don't have any uh, well liberty to tell you about the methodological aspects i will be making many statements so if any one of you is interested in knowing the um, uh, the background or say uh, the documentary uh, documentation of the well literature or whatever data so i might not have time to well go in those details so i will be making just blank statements but they are not blank statements they are not open statements but based on uh, thorough investigation believe me uh, the third thing probably the most important thing is uh, i speak i was telling uh, madam in the afternoon uh, i speak maharashtrian version of british english i don't speak the american so please 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 excuse me if you find any problem in understanding me just stop me where i am uh well coming to back to the uh, well topic of discussion well we don't have well we have ample uh, well um, distribution of lower paleolithic right from lower paleolithic but we don't have any humans any undisputed hominid fossil coming from lower or middle paleolithic for that matter only one skeletal uh, dis- uh, discovery we have we call it narmada man coming from a site called hathnora i think i'm um, is it okay if i sit here i'm blocking your view Uh, well, a site called Narbada, a site called Hathnora, and that's the own sole sole discovery. There is a grave doubt how to put it, where to put it, the dates. Uh, it can be anything from 150,000 years to 40,000 years, uh, any date. Uh, this fossil was discovered in 83. So far, it has not been dated. Uh, there are many, many, many government level problems involved in this discovery. Uh, we have many. Uh, Uh, cave sites in lower paleolithic in middle paleolithic but as you go in the upper levels of middle paleolithic and in the upper, upper paleolithic of course we start getting more open air sites and we have gradual succession there are sites like kunski where we have gradual succession from mesolithic well upper paleolithic to mesolithic onwards as i told you <coughs> we don't have any true human representation fossil representation from the Uh, lower middle or upper paleolithic but when you look at the last 20000 uh, well evolutionary history of man in the subcontinent uh, very wide very clear skeletal span we have representing different time brackets cultural brackets uh, we have mesolithic we have neolithic chalcolithic we have harappan we have aranesh uh, uh, megalithic uh, a special thing Uh, about the uh, neolithic chalcolithic cultures is they used to bury the person bury the dead within habitation so when you are excavating a neolithic chalcolithic site in most of the site you well getting a human burial intentional human ceremonial human burial or intentional human burial is not a rare thing to happen <coughs> well just to well, many of you are familiar with the map so the uh, most of our knowledge of indian mesolithic is uh, coming from the gangetic basin the alabad university is mostly responsible for uh, well uh, giving that in that information sites like saraina raimada uh, they are coming from the gangetic basin um, bronze age harappan earlier we used to call it indus valley civilization because there is more concentration in the indus valley but recently the sites are located indus valley uh, well harappan sites are located 
uh, in Gujarat or in, uh, well, um, in uh, well, very close to Delhi, some sites are dis uh, discovered. So it is no longer an Indus Valley civilization, it's a Harappan civilization. Uh, Neolithic, Chalcolithic, well, river, uh, well, I think everybody knows river uh, Narmada. Uh, well, technically, anything above Narmada, we call it upper uh, North India. Below Narmada, we call it South India. So, well, when you are, when I am talking about South India, well, we are talking about that bracket. Maharashtra comes though we speak a different kind of language. We uh, geographically, we are in South India. And then we have Iron Age megalithic builders, Neolithic, Chalcolithic, and Iron Age megalithic. Uh, we have hundreds and thousands of sites spread throughout the South India. Uh, well, uh, this map is a bit deceptive in the sense uh, these are the sites from where human bones are, well, uh, the sites yielding bones, the uh, skeletal preservation have been properly systematically studied. So this is the site. Uh, that doesn't mean we don't have anything in Bihar or Odisha. There are sites, very well documented sites, but human bones have not so far been subjected to proper laboratory scrutiny. These are the sites so far uh, studied. Now about Mesolithic, <coughs> we have sites like uh, coming from Gangetic Basin site like Sarai Narai, Mahada, Damdama. Uh, well, time bracket is say from 10,000 to 2,500 BC. Uh, the fossil bearing deposits of a site called Fahen, F-A-H-E-I-N, Fahen is in Sri Lankan site and that fossil bearing deposit uh, goes back to 28,000 BP. That they are the first anatomically uh, well, representatives of anatomically uh, modern human sapiens, homo sapiens. Uh, well, in the late stages of uh, Mesolithic, uh, we know that a site like Bagor, we have evidence of uh, domestication of uh, sheep, goat. Uh, and in later phases of Mesolithic, we start getting uh, smaller villages, especially in the Gangetic Valley the sedentary life had already started, probably they had started experiencing, uh, experimenting agriculture also. In Neolithic Chalcolithic phase, we have intensive, well, the uh, domestication of lands animal become more intensive. We have earliest evidence of agriculture coming from Behergad, that is 6500 BC. We, they are, one thing uh, in Neolithic Chalcolithic, we uh, don't have any major urban centers trade activities were limited. They are primarily ruler cultures, smaller cultures. So we don't have bigger cities like Harappa, Mohenjadaro, or Dholavira, or Rakhigadi. We have smaller settlements. But there was uh, definitely some small-scale trade existing at that time. Uh, one of the coexistence of Mesolithic populations, I will come back to this point later on in a minute. Uh, as I told you, they used to bury the person within habitation. So we have habitation come burial sites spread all over. Uh, one very unusual thing about this about this collection is uh, we have over representation of subadults. Almost well, more than 65 percent of our skeletal skeletons they belong to the subadult phase. Uh, well, children less than six or seven, eight years old. We have many days which we call it perinatal days. First few well, few months uh, well, few weeks here and few weeks here we call them perinatal bracket. So we have many skeletons which represent that perinatal bracket. Uh, well, you are familiar with this kind of pictures. Uh, well, <coughs> the, 
the specific style of burying the person within uh, within that kind of run well because of the protective shield that is uh, what is there is something wrong with the well part of the projection is coming down this is okay yeah, yeah. this is part of that anyway oh there is some th slightly thoda i think slight adjustment is required there some focusing probably not not the angle any anyway, part of it is coming here anyway after you when you when you no, it is it is okay here when you take out the uh, well aransa when you get subadult bones uh, not exactly fully preserved but we have fragments and subadult bones they are extremely important for any biological anthropological exercise because any minor insult let it be nutritional insult or pathological insult is better written on subadult bones so getting this kind of very huge subadult population skeletal population a, in from a very compact time bracket is really boon for biological anthropological research in india uh, in <coughs> burial pots we get uh, well say burials we get many uh, burial offerings the <coughs> photograph which you see on the top the person stratigraphically below is male and one above is uh, identified as a female when we expose the site the excavator dolicker said uh, that uh, now we have found first example of sati here uh, and uh, and when you are excavating site you are ex you must have experienced it there will be many press reporters and people with camera and all that no so the next the next day that news came on the first page that we have first example of sati no suffocation is one thing which we can't read on bone so we can't document it uh, well on skeletons that is i leave that job to archaeologists how to interpret it uh, in uh, some burials some uh, well uh, some burial pits we get remains of more than 3 or 4 or 5 individuals so in that case we are more careful in getting the uh, sample more systematically scrutinized because more chances of getting any pathologies there death is definitely simultaneous one time event for all those 4 5 6 skeletons i can count 6 uh, five at least here in the other pit so death must be simultaneous for them so uh, getting uh, well having um, five six people dying at one time must be some kind of epidemic or so we are more careful in examining this kind of stuff stuff evidences of sacrifice the uh, we have antler many times now the consumable parts body parts where muscle muscles are well consumable parts they are eaten and the unconsumable parts they are kept in the burial but sometimes we get remains of the entire animal like what you have in ramapuram entire goat skeleton was uh, uh, found we found it along with the human burial when you come to the harappan phase <coughs> you know harappa manjadaro i don't have to add because you already know about it they are very well planned cities uh, very highly complex well um, social organization uh, well plus defense uh, mechanism fortification walls granaries standardization of weight intensive dependence on trade uh, <coughs> uh, this is like neolithic chalcolithic this is also one of the largest skeletal series that i have for my uh, for my analysis sites uh, like harappa mohenjodaro everybody knows about them lothal kalimangan kalimangan was excavated long 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 back 78 but still the bones are not yet been properly studied rakhigadi uh, is uh, some uh, six years back they stopped excavation at rakhigadi so nowly is the site which was excavated in the last uh, uh, last excavation season uh, some 10 months back uh, 
<coughs> there is nothing much to tell you about this burial, so I just skipped it. When you come to the Iron Age megalithic, we have variety of uh, uh, the monuments, uh, circles, dolmens, and cist, and uh, benhirs, rock cut caves, etc., etc. Um, I was just discussing whether to call it Iron Age megalithic or Iron Age separate and megalithic separate. First, that's not my problem. I don't bother myself with that archaeology stuff. Anyway, there are many burial sites, few habitation sites. That is one important thing about it. Many burial sites because uh, it's easier to locate the stone circle. Easier, very difficult to locate a uh, megalithic site, especially in a, uh, in South where you are working or in the uh, Vidarbha region. Uh, well, not uh, close to, we are talking about the central India. Uh, so, preservation is not very good for megalithic iron age. So, what we get here is uh, this kind of bones in the circle. Well, there, as I, I was telling you about, when you excavate outside the circle, you get many extended burials. But the, within the, those boulders, the, well, in the burial filling, you get this kind of remains, uh, well, charred remains, where the body was cremated first uh, and ceremonially buried. Uh, bones were collected and ceremonially buried in making, well, by making this kind of structure. Well, we, uh, some eight years back, ten years back, we did some uh, experimental archaeology. Uh, and our estimate, a moderate size megalith of this kind measuring say around 15 feet in diameter. It's a small megalith, not moderate size. You, uh, you require manpower of 80 adults and they have to work for six full days to build this kind of structure in that kind of uh, that area. We worked at Bhagimari. Bhagimari is a site near Nagpur. So it's not a event that can immediately follow the death. You have to have, give some time to your relatives, friends come and they join that activity uh, because you require a large labor force. But these are the, uh, definitely the body was cremated first and the, it's a ceremonial burial. Uh, not always uh, that's the case. When you have this kind of cyst within the circle, it's a megalith also, then, then human bones are in fairly good condition we get and in the primary context we get. Uh, the megalithic custom continues in the later phases uh, in some tribal pockets, like uh, the picture that you see in Jorsuma. It's a Naga burial, but it's a megalithic burial, but it is not megalithic in that archaeological context. It's a recently, recent uh, uh, event, some six, 300 or 400 years back. We have a date, some 161640 something, C14 date for this site. So megalithic system uh, custom continues in certain pockets. After uh, the megalithic stage, cremation becomes more acceptable mode of uh, disposing the dead because of uh, the uh, development of urban structure, urbanization process and all that. So burying the person, you require to have a uh, symmetry, properly lit symmetry. So cremation, probably cremation and be because of the impact of maybe uh, religious reasons, impact, more impact of uh, um, Jainism or whatever, uh, the cremation was more accepted. Uh, so uh, we don't get many sites in this time bracket. Uh, three sites were, are worth mentioning here, site of Sanjan, Rupkund and Jorsoma. Jorsoma is the picture that you see here. And Rupkund is that, uh, uh, you just heard about that National Geographic Endeavor, a site in the foothills of Himalaya, uh, a site of Rupkund. It's a glacial lake, 
at the at the height of 16,600 16, feet. Uh, it remains frozen for almost 11 months and five, uh, 11 months and two weeks in a year. If you are to see water, that water you can see only for two weeks in a year. So you have to go there. Uh, the story is uh, a very large group, something between 700 to 1,000 people went there, and uh, including males, females, subadults, and all of them died in one catastrophic event. And the uh, question now is, who are these people from where they came, and what happened to them? Why went there? Are they traders? Are they uh, well, army, or uh, are they pilgrims? Are all the people suffering from any uncurable disease, or it's a ritualistic suicide? Well, these are the questions we try to answer. We try to answer in our national geography film. The site of Sanjan, uh, that picture in the right-hand corner, is a Parsi cemetery. Parsi is a foreign group. Uh, foreign, foreign for India and a Parsi population coming from the Persian region around 1100, uh, maybe something between uh, 1000 to 1100 AD. And this site, we have nine MS dates for this site, and all this, these dates tell us that it is 1500 uh, symmetry. Uh, one very interesting thing is here all the bones, they are of a specific community because we are getting the bones from that particular well or dokuma coming from that well. They belong to that specific community, a very unusual thing to happen in Indian archaeology. So any bone that is coming, definitely they are Parsi, they are of Parsi community. So what we are doing currently is we are comparing contemporary Parsis, um, well, yeah, say contemporary population of Parsis, 1100, uh, sorry, 1500 AD Parsis, skeletal population, and the ancestral population of Parsis in the Iran-Persian region. So we are trying to make, well, we are studying Indian Parsis and uh, this population. We are making some efforts to go to Iran and study that those ancestral groups so that we can have traces of microevolutionary traces that you see in the last thousand years. We have a ideal case here to experiment it. Uh, well, uh, there is some problem here. The first uh, let, uh, sentence reads as relevance of human skeletal studies here. What we do is here, there are some questions uh, that pose, well, we studied, well, anybody, if you look at the anthropological literature, archaeological literature uh, coming out in last, um, well, anthropological literature especially, uh, last some six, seven, eight decades, well, everybody is trying to understand, uh, trying to, well, uh, tell us who are the first original ancestors of this region. Any new thing that you see in culture, let it be evolution of, uh, well, extraction of some different metal, bronze, iron, or introduction of new crop, introduction of new technology, uh, new animal, horse. So that any new development in culture was associated with some migration. So people are coming with that knowledge, that crop or that animal, and so nothing happened here. Everything is coming from outside. So who are the original people here? And what are the population movements? So everybody tried to understand the origin of cultural diversity, caste structure, and chronological development of the cultures. The reason for that is here, well, people tried to put Mesolithic, Neolithic, Harappa, well, what uh, in the corner that you see here. One culture getting extinct and another developing here. If you are imagining a new development because of some new people, then you have to have that kind of picture. You have to have that kind of picture, but that really not the situation. Uh, 
what you have here is, uh, well, we have a city like Bombay, uh, which is a commercial center of the country. And if you go just 45 kilometers north of Bombay, the thickest tribal belt of Maharashtra, only 45 kilometers north of Bombay, district of Thana. So we have people, they are not Neolithic, but they are very close to the Neolithic areas. Still, if you come down south of, well, when you are coming from Mumbai to Pune, you cross Sanyadri Ranges, there are people who are forest dependent people, a, a, a community called Kathkaris. They don't stay in forest, but they trade in forest goods. They are forest dependent communities. They, they are forest fringe communities. A, definitely something close to the Neolithic uh, well, culture. So there is always a coexistence of different cultures that is the uh, nicest part of uh, that um, um, fascinating part of uh, that, uh, region, that region of the globe. So many anthropologists for generations, people are coming there and studying, well, contributing to the development of the subject. One uh, major uh, for putting that particular thing is, one thing uh, really influenced us it is uh, called, it is uh, the uh, title of the slide is Influence of Linguistic Hypothesis. Uh, well, we have 325 spoken languages in India and we try to classify these languages in four different families. And it was presumed that these four language families represent at least four different lineages. Now the question, obvious question is, have these language families developed within country, within the country itself or they are coming with migrants from other region? So evolution and spread of modern humans in South Asia is supposed to be the result of long, intensive history of possible migrations and uh, isolation. Uh, well, these are not my drawings. I'm just copying it for your reference. I mean, they, there are some projections when Austic language speakers came to India, the Dravidian language speakers came to India, then when the uh, uh, Indo-European, Sino-Tibetan people from where they came. So these kind of drawings you see them in linguistic books and these are the drawings taken from one paper, one article written by one prominent uh, team working in, well, by, uh, in genetical line, molecular biology. Uh, this, uh, this, these drawings appeared some 12 years back in one of the publications of one very important figure in Indian anthropology. So the most debatable hypothesis is migration of Indo-European language speakers. I will go back to the earlier slide, sorry. We are talking about this group, Indo-European speakers, they are supposed to have come to India around 4,000 years BP, uh, 4,000 years before present. And they were supposed to have control over horses and technology they had. They had. So this is most, con most uh, debatable, most controversial migration. Uh, it is, we are essentially talking about the group called Aryan. And there is a very big question mark whether really they had. The first uh, letter says that, uh, anyway, that is the repetition of what I have in my slide. So uh, for the people who are not conversant with Indian archaeology, let me tell you that uh, the Harappans, Harappans are supposed to have, sorry, uh, Aryans are supposed to have come, so-called Aryans, they are supposed to have come to the mainland around 1500 BC and they are held responsible for the destruction of the great cities of Indus civilization, cities of city of Harappa and Mohenjo-daro. So the decline and extension of the Indus Valley civilization at these two sites at least is, uh, well Aryans are held responsible for that. Aryans, they are supposed to have a knowledge of horse, they are coming riding horses, having 
very good metal weapons. So, they massacred the population of Bhunjadaro. Uh, and so, this is the theory, Aryan invasion theory is called as. Archaeologically, uh, it is, we had um, two strong things, uh, strong points which, uh, uh, which were debated for a quite long time. There is, it was presumed that there is no iron in the civilization, iron in the civilization and there is no horse. Uh, Dr. Thomas tells me that uh, we have Surkotoda and Kalibangan from these sides. Uh, well, horse bones have been identified. Dr. Thomas is our zoo archaeologist. You know, her, know him. And he also tells me that uh, probably because, as I told you, only consumable parts you see in the burial. So, uh, sorry, uh, non-consumable parts you see in the burial. Consumable parts probably they was uh, they were eaten, they were consumed by the population as a death ritual, whatever. So, on the basis of lower extremities, sometimes it is difficult to distinguish between horse, donkey, and a any mix of these two. And uh, Dhulikar tells me probably the term ayas was mis misinterpreted. Dhulikar is our well person working in this kind of this uh, proto-historian working in Harappan, Harappan, Chalkolithic and Harappan. He said probably confusion is because of the misinterpretation of the word ayas. But one thing, very surely, you have cultural degradation of the Harappan culture starting right from, well, I'm putting here at 1500 BC, but right from 1800, you see gradual reduction, well, cultural degradation of the sites. Uh, well, in, <coughs> uh, in uh, uh, Harappa, we have a separate symmetry, symmetry called R37, symmetry called H, but in Mohanjadaro, uh, they were not able to identify a symmetry associated with with that big city. What they found here is this kind of this kind of well, uh, unceremonially well, not exactly buried, but unceremonially well distribution of skeletal parts in lanes, streets, staircases. That is what these people say. And anthropologists were asked to examine these bones to support the, uh, well, to taste uh, the hidden message was to support the Aryan invasion hypothesis. So, uh, the bones were examined by anthropologists then. Of course, racial category, racial um, well, identity labeling was one of the main object of those, uh, those uh, studies. But they also examined the bones for the cut marks. We call it massacre theory. Uh, the massacre po well, population of um, population of Mohenjo-daro, Aryans are supposed to have massacred them. So we have around 46 of these kind of skulls coming. Uh, 46, yeah, tw tw uh, 46 skeletons or something. Some skeletons are some 46 number plus minus two. We are in archaeology, so we always have that excuse plus minus here and there. Anyway, on 24 skulls, they identified some kind of cut marks. That is, I am telling you a story of uh, 1958. The report was published in 1965 uh, well, uh, about this massacre. Uh, well, we, some questions were being raised, and Kennedy, Professor Kennedy from Cornell, he restudied the entire series. And of 24 skulls which were supposed to have those kind of cut marks, of these 23, uh, of these 24, 23 breaks, they are very, 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 very recent. Some of the breaks, are during the excavation process. You use your knife or your thing. 
So these are these kind of very fresh cut marks. Only on one specimen that he says, probably it is a mill. It happened at the time of death, probably the cause of death, but that we don't know. He is also not very sure of. Well, I also examined. Uh, uh, I also examined all that series again from this perspective, and I don't have very different opinion than what Kennedy says. I am quoting Kennedy here for a specific reason because I wanted to show the same slide was included in coronal represent presentation also. Well, so far as uh, anyway, the first few lines I will read it. Uh, this theories of invasion, migration, mixing of bloods were the answers to for uh, to. Uh, answers to well explain the discrepancies, diversities in the skeletal record. Now, what this skull, uh, I will have that slide, following slide. So, basically, how you look like, how, what are your facial features, what are your uh, skull shape, what is your skull shape, well, that tells you about that your racial identity. Uh, Sometimes you have a long skull, technically, we call it dolicocranial. Where sometimes you have round, well, broad skull, we call it brachycephaly or broad skull. Now, when you have uh, dolico and when you are getting brachy element associated with that, it is considered as interaction of two races. Somebody, some foreign phenotypic element is coming to the site. And this was the interpretation offered for the site of Harappa. Okay. Now, <clears throat> what we did is here, I have examined more than 1600 skulls, uh, skulls, uh, not of archaeological antiquity, but of known antiquity of uh, the male contemporary populations. And of course, archaeological skeletons, the whole, practically every skull discovered known in India, plus modern population, of course, and some tribal groups, more than 4,000, 5,000 tribal measurements I have to tell you that uh, during the agriculture transition, you see this kind of rotation. You see gradual reduction in length, uh, cranial length, uh, and this kind of rotation, face becomes more, comes more inferior to this complex. So there is earlier population is more prognathous, you get now start getting straight face. There is not much of increase in the breadth value, but you have significant decrease in the length value. There is no increase in breadth. I am repeating, there is no increase in breadth, but significant decrease in length value. Now, we are tempted to correlate this decrease and increase with the agricultural transition. When you are eating something very hard, if you are eating something very hard, then you have to chew it for a long time. So for the chewing process to cope up with that mastication stage, you have to have larger teeth. For larger teeth, you have to have larger muscle, larger jaws. And for this movement, you need to have larger muscles here. So in when you have larger muscles here, the skull is not exactly centrally balanced. The foramen magnum, it is slightly, it's slightly, it's like this. So when you have larger teeth, larger jaws, you can't balance your skull properly on the vertebral column. So to counterbalance that more weight here in the mastigatory region, you have to have more powerful neck muscles to bring the skull properly in shape. Your anatomical orientation is your visual axis should be parallel to ground. To put the skull in that anatomical orientation, you need more stronger neck muscles. Okay. So <coughs> when you have that kind of neck muscles, you need more prominent area to have to provide anchoring surface for those neck muscles. So the, you have more length value 
when you are going for agricultural economy, Neolithic, Chalcolithic transition, uh, you, there is economy becomes surplus economy. Everybody need not to go for hunting now. Now I will cultivate for you and I can deputy you to make pottery for the entire village. So we have no full-time potters. So Mesolithic pottery is very crude pottery, but in the Chalcolithic region, we get very well-baked, well-made well, well pottery, very well-baked. So sophistication of pottery leads to, well, food is now more processed. Food is, first you have more grinding equipment that we get from archaeological excavations. Then food was cooked, it was boiled. So culturally, you are influencing your biology. You don't have food is already soft when you are eating it, so you don't have to chew it. So you see gradual reduction in tooth size. We have documentation for that. More than uh, more than 1,200 dental casts I made in different tribal populations to, to verify <coughs> this statement. And we have gradual reduction in tooth size, gradual reduction in this size. And uh, this is this drawing is copied from some book from some author, but exactly that this fits in our model. Uh, well, the, if you have facial region, okay, you can talk in terms of race or ethnic group. But most of the skeletons, they are of that type where we de you don't have facial bones in articulation. So, practically, um, well, rough figure I'm giving you, practically 75% of the interpretations based on taxonomical or racial identity, they are based only on one figure, we call it cranial index length and breadth of the skull. And if that is to be interpreted in terms of food technology, well, uh, well change from dolico to brachycrani, if it is to be interpreted in terms of more sophistication of food preparation techniques, then that classification doesn't hold true. Uh, now what we do is we depend more on uh, traits which are more morphological in appearance. We don't believe in measurements. We don't, because measurements, they are adoptive. They are continuous traits. Morphological traits, once they appear, they will stay till from your birth to death. So these morphological traits, we don't have any sexual dimorphism. They are not age-related, significant genetical component. They are not changed because of the environment, etc., etc. So we study uh, n number of traits from skull, from basically from teeth and skull. And what we found here is, there is basic underlying genetic homogeneity of the Indus, uh, Indus people. There is no foreign phenotypic ele elements in the later levels of Harappa. Massacre evidence at Mohenjo-daro cannot be supported anthropologically. We have been telling about all these things, say, some, till some 10 years back, but nobody was re really believing us. Now, recent, recently, molecular biologists, the DNA people, the rich people, uh, they have come up, they, they came with this kind of conclusion. Uh, number of Indo-Europeans coming to India around 1500 BC was far less than what was anticipated earlier. When this person, a number one uh, Parth Muzundar from Calcutta, when he disclosed, well, gave first statement, he made the, he used the word far four times the number of you know, et cetera, et cetera, was far, far, far less, far, 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 far less than what was anticipated earlier. It is definitely, he said, definitely not in thousands. Probably it was not in hundreds. Probably few dozens only came at one point of time. 
how i don't know because i am i don't deal with that subject and another very interesting uh, uh, well statement he made that gene flow was not uh, well one directional it should be was not unidirectional or one directional people were some genes were coming from there and some genes was going from here so if you if you are looking at this kind of genetic transfer transfer of genetic material then it has to be these people aryans if they are coming they must be must have come for trade relations you are dozens of people are coming they are not coming in hundreds at one point of time and some genes are flowing going from here to that region so now the problems are uh, anyway one thing is for sure there are no large scale migrations in the subcontinent in that second million bc that was uh, migrations probably related with the trade the third part uh, the third sentence indo european languages spread more rapidly more in north india well i don't know but uh, if i have to sell my product to you people i should speak in english i should speak in english and this is how trade languages they uh, so wherever you have agriculture surplus if you look at the indian scenario from that point of view where the land is fertile uh, people speak indo european languages where the land was not really fertile we have uneven terraces uh, north india uh, south india you have more concentration of dravidian anyway this is a very rough statement to make at this stage and this is uh, i would like to have feedback from you i am in the process of uh, uh, well i am writing something here you uh, see these kind of sentences occurring in sociological literature once the cities were destroyed the dravidians fled to south india i mean we are talking essentially of cities like harappa harappa is harappan culture was supposed to be dravidian culture aryans came here they massacred the population the remaining population they were pushed to south india that is the notion which really dominated the anthropological thinking orientation for the last almost 80 80 years 80 years if not more uh this to me it appears to be biological sociological unreality uh well if uh, i am i am the winner if i am to well if i am the master then definitely i will keep some folks behind to work with me as a slaves and that element slaves they will leave their genetic markers in the population to come but if you look at north india uh, there is no typical dravidian phenotypic element uh dravidian phenotype of south it appears to be a result of very long history of adaptation to local climate local adaptation ethnoarchaeologically people like um, mlk mlk murthy they studied did, did marvelous ethnoarchaeological work and he tells me and i also did my contributed my mind says that tribe, tribes of south uh, there is every ground to believe that they are occupying that respective territory since thousands of years it's not the story of last 2000 years there is genetic continuity in the mesolithic population from mesolithic to harappa to neolithic chalcolithic to iron age so i am repeating what you what i just said so to summarize the first part <coughs> picture is still complicated uh, for most of the uh, problem is for most of the skeletal series sample size is limited we are essentially talking not of harappa mohenjo daro but other sites which are which provide us comparative material 
traditional methods, traditional methods of uh, biological anthropology are inadequate to trace the phylogenetic history of our species beyond certain generations. We are talking here our say morphology, uh, measurements or uh, well, dermatographics. These are the, I also did work for my PhD dissertation. I also worked on this kind of uh, well, parameters. I took measurements, I took prints, I took uh, some blood groups, PTC testing ability, these kind of things. But these methods are not adequate to answer the questions of racial identity. We need to have more archaeological data, more anthropological data. And more importantly, we have to have apply scientific methods. People are, I'm sorry, very, very, very sorry, but archaeologists also, they are very rigid. They are not really open for any new, in, a, in India. In India, so you are excused. In India, they are not really open for any archaeological innovations. The geophysics, in, when site of Inamgo was being excavated, actually I had a friend working in a, we have an organization called um, Groundwater Resources. I mean, they had, they were using those geophysic methods in early 80s, 81. And I took some of those people to the site. They were not, Dolikar said, I know what is there, so I don't need your help. Anyway, <coughs> we need more sophisticated scientific <coughs> techniques, statistical tools are to be applied. More questions which remain unanswered. You think about extinction of Harappan culture and this will happen to you. <laughs> so if, if the RNA invasion hypothesis is not true, then what is the reason for having these many bones on streets? There has to be a reason. Uh, it's uh, really frustrating, really, really frustrating. Uh, we, there is no, many pathological markers don't leave their signs on bone. Something like plague, where, you know, the, during 1910 to 1914, the death toll because of influenza and, um, influenza and plague was at least 20 times more than the total death toll of the first and second world war together. Okay, and these things will not leave any signatures on bone. So probably this kind of thing happened or probably flood hypothesis is always there to help us. Anyway, possible approaches. We need more data from the Harappan skeletons and we have no sites like Harappa Mohenjo-daro. So we have only Harappa Mohenjo-daro are disturbed, but we have sites here in the, um, Rakhigadi is there, Sinauli is there, many sites which survived up to almost uh, 1200 BC of Harappan culture with uh, uh, that Harappan effect. Uh, ancient DNA is, uh, we have very, very high hopes for ancient DNA. So far, we, uh, we are, I have been trying to work on ancient DNA, not myself, but I am making some people work on this, this aspect, but so far, no luck. For the first time, we got ancient DNA properly sequenced, analyzed for that Rupun, for that Himalaya, and the site of Sanjan, uh, some 400 years back, we could sequence four, extract and sequence four DNAs, four, four, four individuals, four, four samples, we could sequence. So, four ancient DNAs of 400 BC, no, 400, so 400 years BP. It is a real contribution and we are getting some success. Uh, what is extremely important here is anthropology, archaeology, linguistics, genetics, genetics. They should come with their data, stable like this, 
keep their minds open and discuss the things. Uh, I have some ten, uh, five, five, six minutes more, so I can use that time. So what we are doing, if we are not doing race, if you are not doing racial analysis, what we are doing now? Uh, we are trying to study the role of genetic, of course, but ecological and technological components in influencing the diversities that you see in our species. Uh, Iravati Karve was uh, a leading anthropologist of the country. She was founder member of our department of, of the college. She was the uh, first head of uh, first chairman for the department. In her words, uh, what are we Indians? Why are we what we are? So this is this should be the focus of our discussion. So we are trying to approach the problem by following the taking aids from different uh, different um, um, sciences interpretation approach we are following. We are using rigorous scientific statistical testing editing. In short, we are trying to study human societies by approaching biocultural perspective. We are not studying only biology. We are trying to relate biological features with the culture. Okay, <coughs> uh, the first word reads as osteobiography. Osteosis bone and biography, you know what biology is, biogra biography is. So anything that you do, your age, sex, type of occupation you are engaged in, type of food you are consuming, type of disease you are suffering from, everything is written on bone in some or the other and we try to read those life histories that are written on bone. That's why our subject is called as osteobiography. Our main emphasis is to examine the relative quality of hunter-gatherers and farmers' health and nutrition. More specifically, the effects of an increase in population densities in the agriculture transition, less nutritious diet as compared to that of the hunters and farmers, hunters, hunter-gatherers. So the <coughs> what we do is we study the bones not only from the uh, morphometric point of view, but we try to understand the uh, the uh, uh, the other aspects, the paleopathology. And these are some of the indicators, paleopathological indicators. We call it them technically. There is no point to describe all that, but they are the indicators of growth disturbance. If even if you are said um, uh, 50 years old. There are certain markers on your teeth or some long bones. You call them Harris line or enamel hypoplasia. They are the uh, enamel, Harris lines get resorbed after some time. But hypoplastic lines, they stay throughout your life. So they, when you have that particular, in early childhood, if you have some kind of nutrition or pathological, prob pathological problem, trauma, then that trauma will be reflected in the formation of deficient enamel in your teeth and we try to read that. Many congenital disorders, uh, many anti-mortem, post-mortem fractures we see, so we try to examine. The specimen right on top, that is from uh, a site called S. papinaikanpati iron specimen. The person was attacked from behind with flat iron weapon, sword type of iron weapon. So from, blow came from there. So actually I can tell you, so anyway, up to here, here, this part thickness is normal, but here bone is chipped like this. So what is very interesting here to tell you here is, you can easily interpret this particular specimen as interpersonal, intercommunity rivalry. To me, 
it is more logical to interpret in different perspective. The reason I tell you, if you closely examine the edges of the bone, you see some kind of remodeling there. Some healing process was on. Person definitely died because of this wound, but not immediately after this thing happened. He died because of the secondary infection which came out of this wound. Uh, this society we are talking about is 200 BC. That time they had knowledge, medical expertise to keep the person alive despite having such a serious injury where the most delicate tissue of the body is exposed. At least something between 15 days to 2 months. So that tells you not of the interpersonal rivalry but tells you about the medical knowledge of that population. And this is more positive way of looking at the bones. These are the second one. These are the specimens which we got from that Rupkund at Glacial Lake. And the first theory was probably landslide people where that whole group was killed. But uh, the type of injuries that we see here, some round object, metal, some rounded object like something like cricket ball. You don't play cricket here, but many of you have seen India. So cricket ball, something of that size, very tough, very solid probably they hit their, we have at least three cases, not everybody was, well, we had that kind of problem, but hellstorm, that is our interpretation. And well, uh, you believe me, uh, if, if time permits, if you are interested, I can show you Rupun slides, but uh, the, when you are, when the clouds come, they come really, really, really from nowhere. Now it is clear and another five minutes you will not, you won't be able to see your entire body. Just believe me, you will not be able to see the lower portions of your where you are stepping in. You such a thick clouds come, and if you hailstorm starts at that time, it will be all alagula, and your people will start running here and there, and it will be all mess. It's a glacial lake, very slippery ground, and with all types of borders and all that. I will show you some of the photographs if time permits. And we have very uh, many uh, green stick fractures, the one on top. Delicate bones, subtle bones, you can bend them, you can break them easily. So that's, we, we call it like green bamboo stick, you can bend them. This is post-mortem uh, uh, post thing. Human working, uh, well working, intentional working on human bones after uh, defleshing the bones. This is a recent thing uh, from a place called Kalpi. These bones are, are known in paleopathological literature as pencil sharpened bones from India. As if you are sharpening your pencil, the bone finish look is that kind of finish you have for the cutting edge. Why they did it, I don't know. Uh, I don't know of any tribal society who will use human bones for as a, a tool. Human bones are used as a magical religious purpose basically because and mostly skull and femur they are more important uh, many uh, many taponomical taponomical infections uh, infections like syphilis metabolic insults metabolic sorry metabolic insults vitamin defi deficiencies iron deficiencies and all that something is anyway metabolic insults taponomal infections syphilis yaws these kind of things uh, we have cases of dental pathologies many uh, degenerative pathologies, back pain, all others, basically others, you have this kind of problems for the, there is some problem here with the software, uh, not matching, part of it is coming down. Anyway, uh, these are cancerous lesions, we call it neoplastic or newborn formation. 
cancerous lesions. What is more interesting for me is to, we call it habitual stress. There is something at the distal end of tibia. We call it squatting facet. S-Q-U-A-T-T-I-N-G, squatting facet or kneeling facet. I can't sit in squatting position for a long time because I don't have that facet. So you have more incidence of that facet, especially after pottery technique evolved. In agriculture population, they show that facet. Majority population, they don't show that facet. So we are trying to examine uh, how we are studying the present day potters, person who sit in this posture, see the actual, what exactly is the kind of habitual stress. In the afternoon, I saw that Mother India uh, cassette. Uh, this is from that Mother India. So every day you are you are preparing floor for the day. So like your hand um, right-handed or left-handed, there are ways you can. This is called as the other way is also possible, but knowingly unknowingly I will do it this way, or a hand holding it is called as the other way is also possible. But this is my style of doing it. Similarly, if you want to carry a heavy load on your shoulder, you will use only one shoulder. The other shoulder you are not very comfortable with. Similarly, if you are doing this kind of thing, you can do only with one hand normally or the um, ironish keepers you are holding object in one hand blacksmith and hammering it with the other hand so there is differential mechanical stress on left and right side of the body and we are trying to examine it we have more than 18 clavicle more than 14 clavicles of coming from the same grave one clavicle is shorter other one is bigger and there cannot be any other reason than the occupation stress they are all coming from the neolithic bracket and this is that Mother India style. Mother India is the film which was nominated for Oscar in 62. And this picture, the other picture that you see, it came on uh, 18th of August 2003 in one of the leading newspapers of the country. So I concept here, clavicle is not under stress. This collarbone is not under stress. But what I am trying to tell you is concept of manual plowing is still exists in India different kind of professions we are trying to examine what kind of impact they make on one of my students is working on this long neck current group you know who are these currents long neck so from right early childhood they will start putting those kind of well, uh, rings here metal rings brass rings and this is normal x-ray so normally person should look like this but because of the sheer weight of those bangles clavicles orientation of the clavicle goes this way so deceptively they, uh, the neck becomes long. Actually, now this uh, uh, long neck current, they are enjoying having that long neck now because that has become their profession, uh, that source of earning money. You have to pay entry fee to see them, to enter their villages. A, a, uh, a specific pathology, we call it maxillary sinusitis, which was not noticed earlier in, the, in, the, in our sample. Something that is here on the maxillary floor. Uh, actually, it is what are we are looking at somewhere here. Uh, I am not a bad photographer, but I want to show you what you don't see here. We try to. We am talking at ethnoarchaeology of maxillary sinusitis. Uh, if that landlady is to cook for food for four, well, family um, family of four how much time she will spend in the kitchen, what kind of fuel she is using, okay? how much accumulation of smoke, how much smoke she is inhaling, how much toxic she is inhaling. She is preparing it 
you see a lady there and on her back you just don't see it here but there is a child believe me there is a child in that jhula so not only the mother but the child is also inhaling smoke at least 2 hours a day <coughs> this is the type of house there are no windows so this is ethno archaeology that is i'm applying ethno archaeological tool for understanding the bone pathology in a better way so there are no windows there is no ventilation here only ventilation is the, we have sloping roofs and there will be some gap between the wall and the roof so that is the only uh, if you go to travel area now in september october when the firewood is not totally dry the conditions are really very very bad uh, ground plans if you compare this uh, present day ground plan with the uh, travel ground plan with the chalcolithic ground plan it is exactly the same firewell and this well we are talking about this ground plan is exactly the same so we are doing this ethno archaeological exercise now not only the where the cattle hey, the how close these people are staying in uh, well uh, how close the, with the cattle air get polluted not only animal refuge but being cl that close with the animals air also get polluted so what kind of new pathogens that are coming well human skeletal biology as a research career in india is very very frustrating actually that illustration is really good you can you are a better reader you can read this few lines and uh, sp uh, i won't mind spending uh, say 30 seconds for that they are copied from some book burials on historical sites are much more trouble than they are worth these are the people who are uh, their written sentences so just just ignore them just throw them aside before walimbe comes on the scene uh this is one of the best excavated skeletons in my career uh, uh this was excavated uh, and one day uh, the whole well it rained so 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 heavily that we have full trenches were full and uh, nothing was existing on the other day as a research career there are no training facilities there are no trained persons inadequate literary skeletal database what is really important here is we have to have there, is, there are two main organizations in india anthropological survey of india and archaeological survey of india they are excavating cemeteries they are excavating harappan cemeteries without involving physical anthropologists biological anthropologists in the on the excavation scene which is very bad and uh, i have now in anthropological survey of india at least my friends are now running the department he is director of that asi so i am getting the things changed well in his career i think probably he will have four years so probably something good will come out but for me as i told you in the afternoon for me it's very good because there are i had, don't have any competition in india there is no other person there is no other laboratory working on these lines so i am wanted everywhere so it pays me being a rare breed so thank you very much i had to